0: Hi there, we're back with, we're going to listen to a Gaia show, a boots, a boots.
1: Gebekli Teppi, yay,
0: Gebekli Teppi, Genesis of the Gods, with Andrew Collins. Mark of the Beast exclamation point L.A. Marzulli and Gaia, Nephilim, and Future of Humanity. I'm David Wilcock and welcome to Disclosure. David Wilcock. got a nice safe place here where we can talk. <laughs> I'm going to be telling you some very interesting stuff through the guise of this interview with one of the real amazing pioneering truth seekers in our field. None other than Andrew Just the volume. a legend who has written many books and is really breaking new ground. Now, it should be obvious to you if you have spent time looking into the truth arena that the American government has had its financial system outsourced to the Federal Reserve, which is actually a private consortium of bankers. We have weird Egyptian symbolism on the United States dollar Mm. with the pyramid that has the eye on top, the all-seeing eye, clearly suggesting that there is some sort of fascination with ancient mystery traditions and ancient civilizations, specifically Egypt, on behalf of the people who are printing our money. Well, how far Uh does this go? In some of my episodes on wisdom teachings that I talk about disclosure in, I've gone into great detail about the so-called Illuminati and how they are advertising essentially Luciferian symbolism out there. But where does this come from? Is it possible that the most powerful people on Earth do have some sort of secret cult that relates back to ancient traditions and ancient civilizations? Well, we start really drilling into this in this interview with Andrew Collins. And it isn't until the second interview that's coming up later in our series that I really hit him with some directly confrontational questions. But bear in mind that based on insiders who I've spoken to, the so-called Illuminati do trace themselves back as the descendants of apparent extraterrestrial beings who came here to Earth calling themselves the Watchers. And these Watchers and their stories are preserved in an ancient apocryphal gospel that was not included in the Bible but is as old as the book of Genesis known as the book of Enoch. So there's some very fascinating stuff here because as we drill into the story of the Watchers we're actually drilling into what the most powerful people on earth believe themselves to be the descendants of. So there's a lot of very interesting things to explore coming up in this interview with Andrew Collins. I do rough him up a little bit at the beginning just for fun. He's an English guy. He can handle it. He's got a wry sense of humor. So check it out and have fun. Here we go. All right, Andrew Collins, it's great to have you here. You are a true legend in this field. You probably generated so many tinfoil hats that you could have your own spot and carry on a table of the arms. That's where I the Look, you've been doing this for a long time, yeah. and you're one of the names that has just been around forever. Thank you. You've investigated so many different, fascinating subjects that are out of the box thinking that break barriers that are redefining what we think we know in light of new information. Do you feel that the nature of science is to follow the trail of evidence? Um, I think
2: science itself is something which uh, only really gets the full picture after people like ourselves uh, investigate it, put it out into the collective consciousness, and then it's picked up, uh, in a way which is probably uh, transformed into something that's that's more academic, scholarly, and very often you won't even get credit for it. But I I, I see that that is the way that it it works. It's been doing that for hundreds of years, um, maybe even thousands, and I think that there is almost like a, a, a tier of um of, of progress with it and that i'm somewhere there i'm not a scholar i'm not an academic i wouldn't claim to be i'm certainly not a scientist i mean my background is journalism um and i'm a writer i get my ideas out through books and whoever takes them up takes them up you know if that's an academic that's great you know if it's just the general public uh, taking it on board brilliant you know i mean that i've done my part i think that's about as far as i can take it
0: But as far as what you are writing about as a journalist, you're covering things that are being done by scientists that are breaking new ground in science.
2: They are, but because I'm not a scholar or an academic, I can say what I like. Um, And, you know, people like myself or Graham Hancock, you know, can, can seize these things and say exactly what's going on. We don't have to worry about peer review. We don't have to worry about how the academic world is going to react or accept what we say, um, because that's exactly the way that journalism, true journalism, is about. You know, you print the truth, and you know people either like it or they don't. Um, and obviously, a number of books that I've done, um, the, the reaction that has been, you know, um, horrendous from the point of view of the scholars, and whatever. And then you suddenly find that they themselves have taken on board your ideas and are running with them um, in ways which people who see it, who know that you've written about these subjects, you know, uh, can't believe. I mean, like the discovery of, of a huge great cave system uh, beneath the, um, the pyramids of, of Giza, um, which is something which uh, I achieved uh, with colleagues in 2008 um i took the you know once this had, had, had occurred and been in the case for uh, uh, four times um i had to bring it to the uh, notice of the authorities so i went to see the uh, um, the guy in charge of the um, supreme council of antiquities in egypt um, dr Zaid Hawass, and sat down with him and he denied that these caves existed even though i was giving him photographs to show them and um, saying, look, we know everything about the Giza Plateau, you know, you can't make discoveries, only we can, and we know everything, and there's no caves there. Mm. Within six months, he was um, recording a series called Chasing Mummies, um, where he was actually inside those caves, saying it's the most incredible experience he'd ever had at Giza. This is massive. This is a whole cave complex wow. that, that actually flows all the way beneath the um, the plateau and probably goes uh, beneath the second pyramid, which is the highest point on the plateau and for some reason, nobody knew that it was there um, and it 's within the shadow of the great pyramid um, and you know it, and, and nobody had recognized the fact it was there and um, this was five years of research trying to pin down the exact location going from uh, from old journals and accounts that were nearly 200 years old and realizing that that a few explorers um, had actually managed to find the entrance into this cave system uh, in the early part of the 19th century and then suddenly nothing.
0: Are you um, saying these are the results of natural underwater aquifers or is it more of carved
2: passengers? Well they're certainly natural in origin, almost certainly carved out by uh, water um, at a very uh, great age. Um, you know, perhaps tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of years ago. Um, However, they would seem to have been uh, enhanced by human hands. Um, You know, there are certain, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, very primitive marks, symbolic forms uh, within them, um, which clearly shows that human action, also certainly the early part of them, would seem to have been used as some kind of necropolis for birds. you know, that that there was obviously some kind of um, god form or goddess form associated with the entrance area, uh, which is now known as the Tomb of the Birds. Um, and evidence has been found there of the interment of, uh, you know, birds. I mean, this was reported back in the, the mid 19th century. Um, you know, that one report actually talks about, you know, finding these, these bird mummies and things and removing them. And that, along with the other Journal accounts from the, the early part of the 19th century realized that, yeah, you know, made us realize that there was something there that, that um, everybody else had missed, and was certainly not to be found in any academic paper um, or book or anything that had been written by anybody before. And um, at the end of that five-year search, we, we found the entrance into the cave system uh, and explored it. I mean, it was full of bats, by the way, um, and. Um, you know, it, it's 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 a start. We've, we explored it to a certain distance. We know they go further, um, and it's very possible that the stories of the existence of these caves almost certainly influenced the fact that the pyramids were actually constructed where they were on the plateau, um, because the ancient name of Giza is Rostow, which means basically the the entrance um, into you know underground chambers or, or or caves or something, which suggests that there was a connection between the actual placement of the whole um, pyramid field there and the existence of the caves. Um, and that the caves were seen as like some kind of entrance into the so-called duat, the otherworldly or underworld environment that the, uh, the ancient Egyptians believed that the, the soul had to pass through before it could rise up. Um, uh, uh, into the afterlife amongst the stars, and that this was like a symbolic representation of the duet.
0: So then Zahi Huwas ends up doing documentaries on this and never gave you guys credit for having rediscovered
2: Not really, although um, he did start calling them Collins Caves, which <laughs> is, a, is a title which stuck. So I, I like that idea, that yeah. he inadvertently uh, named them after uh, myself anyway, so that was uh, some kind of... Um, Credit for for having discovered them, but I mean I'm not worried because Zahi Hawass, uh, you know, he was the you know the, the boss of the Supreme Council of Antiquities. It was his job to deny that they existed. And um, when I actually went to to interview, um, you know, to give him this information, and he was denying it, it was you know it was almost fast, It was like a joke. And uh, at one point, he it almost looked as if there was a smile on his face and uh, uh, one of my colleagues was there. They just burst into laughter because they thought it was a joke. And um, in a way, it is a joke. And I think that at that point, I got the joke. And the joke is that, that he had to say this because there is no way that amateurs like myself could make those type of discoveries. This, this is the problem. You know, you, people like me, in theory, should not make discoveries like this.
0: It's like the Wright brothers cooking up the airplane in the garage. But I understand this, and I haven't got a problem
2: with it. Um, but although I am very glad that a, a film crew actually filmed Zaha going into these caves for the first time and experiencing them for the first time, and to recall, you know, his reaction going in them, and this, you know, this was live, this was not edited, in theory, and you know, so it's good that, that once he was inside them, you know, it, he he, you know, saw how marvelous these were. And how incredible a discovery it actually was! So you know, it's almost like I was vindicated. Um, so you know, I'm very happy with that. Really, That's but great. and so th- this is, yeah, you know, this is sort of areas of type of work which um, you know I like, and I put it out there. if I get credit for it, great. If I don't, well, I understand the system.
0: So, for people who are entrenched in mainstream ideology, mainstream beliefs, they have bought this belief that all of Egyptian civilization starts in the conventionally accepted archeological terms, now we have Gobekli Tepe, and you have written an incredible book on that. It just seems like you keep you know, leapfrogging and going beyond what you already have done. How does Gobekli Tepe, first of all, what is Gobekli Tepe, and how ha- have those discoveries helped to add potential weight the academic argument that Egypt can be a lot older as a culture than we have now ascribed its as significance as to do. Well, in the early
2: 1990s, um, Dr. Robert Schock of Boston University uh, looked at the, um, the weathering of the Sphinx monument, um, which sits on the eastern edge of the Giza Plateau, uh, and also the enclosure walls around it, and realized that the weathering could not have been done by, um, by wind erosion as it has been uh, properly believed up to that point by Egyptologists, but almost certainly it has been caused by um, uh, water precipitation, um, i.e. rain coming down, um, running along the, the plateau and going into the enclosures and over the body of the sphinx.
0: You have these smooth, sensuous curves. Absolutely,
2: and I mean, and it, yet, it, it's obvious. If you look at it, you know, it, it looks like rain weathering, and yet, know, yes,
0: weathering. Yesterday, I looked up on Wikipedia Orion correlation theory, mm. which is the belief that the melt stars of Orion correspond to the Giza Plateau and the Three Pyramids, and it says right on Wikipedia, as if it's totally credible, that that theory of water weathering has been widely debunked and that it obviously is a result of Things like the wind.
2: Well, absolutely. But, I mean, the problem there is that Wikipedia is essentially controlled um, by people who wish to remain within the orthodox or the conventional thinking, yep. and that um, any new ideas and ideologies that are generally you know, put within it are removed very quickly. And this happens yep. um, on many different subjects and areas of science. You know, there's almost like a sort of Tabal, if you like, that, that, that is forever watching certain pages on Wikipedia um, and removing anything that they don't like. You know, yeah. not because it's wrong, but because they don't like it, because it, it's against their own paradigm. Basically, but coming back to the ideas of um, you know civilization being much older than what we uh, we knew is that Dr. Shock, uh, you know, tried to estimate when that amount of rain would have fallen um, in the area of the the Nile and you know he went back uh, maybe five six thousand BC. Um, Other assessments would suggest that it goes back to earlier as as 10,500 BC Um, and there's a lot of speculation about that I mean there's no actual you know date that we can sort of pull out of an envelope and say but it's certainly older I'm, I'm pretty certain of that but Myself and uh, various other um, ancient mystery writers uh, ran with this this story um, back in the nineteen nineties, and um, it was you know we were it was you know going out on a leg because there was no real evidence of civilization being that old, other than myths and legends, um, speculation, perhaps even forerunners of ourselves that have written uh, about this sort of subjects. But then. Um, In my own area, um, I've been writing about the origins of civilization and looking into the Hebrew legends um, relating to the Garden of Eden uh, being an actual location, the terrestrial paradise, which it does seem to have been, and it seems to have been located in the area of eastern Anatolia, which is modern um, Asiatic Turkey. And the four rivers of paradise were said to have taken their, their rise from... Um, The Garden of Eden. Well, two of those rivers are easily identified as the Euphrates and the Tigris, and both of those rise in the area that we're talking about here in eastern Anatolia. Um, And this same area is the cradle of civilization. A number of the first for humanity all occurred here. I mean, everything from agriculture to animal husbandry to metallurgy to the first structured buildings. Um, even down to the first beer and the first wine were all thought to have, uh, have originated from this area. Um, and quite clearly something fundamental was, was happening, something was changing here, probably around 9000 B.C., um, at a time that is known um, to scientists as, as the Neolithic Revolution. You know, um, A time which was seen as, as, a, as a point of change within the climate, the climate warmed, we had this revolution in agriculture and, um, and other things, and this eventually led to the rise of civilization. Well, I was looking at the legends connected with the Garden of Eden and the of Paradise in Hebrew myths. And Do you what think this you found suggests, the
0: other two rivers?
2: Uh, the other two rivers are, there's just more debate, but one of them is almost certainly the Aras River, um, also known as the Arras, which flows eastwards. From the same area of eastern Anatolia into the Caspian Sea. The fourth river, uh, there is more of a debate over that, but um, the best evidence seems to be that it's the Greater Zab River, which is, which again flows um, from eastern Anatolia and actually empties into the Tigris um, in uh, Iraq and then, you know, until the two become one. It's a big river in its own right. So, as I said, all, along, all four of them rise within a sort of a oh, 50 100 mile um, area, which is pretty close considering the rest of the world, you know what I mean? So, but you've also got in this very same area the myths relating to these wisdom bringers, these angels um, known as watchers um, in a text known as the Book of Enoch. they mentioned in other early Hebrew texts as well. What it said is that they. The, the garden of righteousness or the garden of Eden. In other words, they were connected with it.
0: The Watchers do.
2: Yeah. Um, and that they lived in paradise, basically, which, obviously, you can see as being somewhere in the sky. But I began to realize that this was probably re- referring to a physical location somewhere in eastern Anatolia. And it was said that the Watchers not only descended um, amongst mortal coins, i.e. ourselves, and took wives for themselves who produced uh, giant offspring who are referred to in the text as Nephilim. Um, uh, but that they also revealed the arts and sciences of heaven to their mortal wives, wherever whoever else I suppose they were talking to. And these arts and sciences of heaven correspond pretty well The first for humanity that all took place in the area of eastern Anatolia. And so, what I suggested is that the watchers, these human angels who are described as extremely tall, um, with quite pale skin, pale hair, um, elongated faces, um, which are described as like vipers or snakes uh, on occasions, uh, with these piercing eyes which rise that said to sort of like radiate out light, almost like the sun, um, that they were actually a memory of some kind of uh, elite that had come into the area of, um, of, of eastern Anatolia and take the control on the development of humanity in this, this region. And that the way that they were remembered by the people who lived in this region end up becoming the legends relating to the Watchers you know, the, the, the angels, which, by the way, those that gave this wisdom to humanity were the ones that um, became the rebels. These were the rebel angels. But also they became the fallen angels because it was believed that they'd fallen from grace, basically. Yeah, so, so you have 200 of them in the Book that's of That's right, 200 indeed. And, and then uh,
0: their offspring start to become cannibals, right? They start beating
2: That's what it says. And, yeah. I mean, what the the reality of that is, who knows? But what it said is that... The offspring, these Nephilim, were rounded up and all killed, um, many of them still as, as babies, apparently, as well. Um, and that their watcher parents were sort of forced to watch this first infanticide of human history. Um, and that the, the, the rebel watchers were rounded up and incarcerated. Um, and this was something that was allegedly witnessed by the writer of the Book of Enoch, Enoch himself, although. It's unlikely to have been penned by this, this character of, of, of Biblical history, um, and that that's why we know this story, because you know, Enoch recorded the, the, the events down in, in the book that his name you know, um, bears today. Um, and although we can see these as myths, they are very similar to other myths that exist in the same region, for instance, to do with the Anunnaki the gods of heaven and earth in in Sumerian um, and Babylonian tradition, which obviously relates to the country of Iraq, most specifically. Um, And it's said that the Anunnaki also have these these piercing eyes, like like snakes. Um, They are also described as as very serpentine in in nature. Um, And the texts say that they lived originally on this, um, this, this, this holy mound, known as Duku, the Duku. Um, and that the Duku mound was situated on a sacred mountain called Kasag, um and that it was from this position that they gave to humanity the first sheep and grain. Well, quite clearly, the sheep is a reference to animal husbandry, which we you know took place in, in eastern Anatolia. And the grain, clearly, is a reference to the, the foundations of agriculture in the very same area. Um, and it said that the Anunnaki lived on Karthag, um, and that eventually they helped humanity create the first cities. Um, they helped them irrigate um, the land and create the sort of, you know, irrigation channels and things like this. Um, and clearly, they are seen as, um, as you know, semi-divine, at least, figures, um, but who somehow interact with mortal kind again to give them the knowledge to found civilization. Um, and there are other accounts from um, from Persia, you know, ancient Iran as well, that talk about the immortals, you know, doing similar things. So, you know, similar legends coming from exactly the same area. And I ran with all these ideas uh, in a book uh, called From the Ashes of Angels, which was published originally in 1996, um, and basically saying that something big went on in this area. We don't know exactly who these people were, we don't know exactly where they came from, um, but they clearly came from the outside into this region and took over the show. They were an elite base. They either worked with or controlled the the, the local um, population, and that from this connection, this trafficking between these two different types of human um, civilization, eventually arose. Well, what I didn't know at this time is that the Gobekli that, um, the, the Tepe had just been discovered, um, and this was something that would not be made public until the year 2000. And what Gobekli Tepe is essentially is if you can imagine Stonehenge in, um, in England if you then multiply that by, let's say, 20 times, and then cover the stones in beautiful carvings of animals and make them human-like in appearance um, with T-shaped terminations at the top, um, you know, sort of like, they're like a big letter T, um, and you know, create these, these enclosures around them um, and put them on a mountaintop top in southeast um, Anatolia. Um, and then, Bury them um, uh, 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 ten thousand years ago because it seems as if you know the, the, these these structures go back probably to around eleven and a half thousand years when they would seem to have first been um, erected.
0: And that's not being disputed by anybody. No. With any credibility. no.
2: I mean the important thing about Quebec is the fact that it was buried around ten thousand years ago. Um, the dates, obviously, are before this, as I say, they go back probably to 9,500 BC. Um, but whereas there are many other megalithic sites around the world which, you know, could date to this age, they've not been covered up, you know, they've not been preserved like a time capsule. That's the big difference with Quebec to Tepo, because here it's untouched. So what the archaeologists are, are revealing from beneath this layer cake of activity, um, is something that's absolutely unique because it's pristine. Um, these, these enclosures, these, these megalithic monuments, um, which, as I said, you could liken to, to Stonehenge in England from a much later date, are something which um, would which, which tell us that this, what they call monumental architecture, was being constructed as early as 9,500 BC. And this is the type of time frame that some people associate the age of the Sphinx. Um, So, you know, those like myself and Dr. Robert Schott and Graham Hancock and various other people who were suggesting that civilization was much older and who may have been poo-pooed at the time over this are now being proved correct. Um, And even just um, in the last year or so, the science magazine, New Scientist, Ran a front page story saying, you know, civilization much older than, than, than we ever expected. Um, and, you know, so academia does catch up eventually, uh, but it might take 20 years.
0: Well, the book of Enoch doesn't appear in the Bible, right? It, why do you think that book was not canonized? Is there po- possibly a reason? Do you think these fallen angels? and their descendants might still be around somehow and wouldn't want to be found out? I think that
2: the concepts of the the Book of Enoch being that um, humanity trafficked with um, fallen angels is something that was abhorrent to the early Christian church, um, anathema, quite literally. And that for this reason, when they came to put together the combined volume that we we know today as the, the Old Testament, um, that they looked at the, the the Book of Enoch, which could easily have been in there. I mean, it, it's it's a very old text, um, and they said, "Look, we don't want this sort of stuff in there. We don't want people knowing about the idea that we may have been trafficking with, you know, these angels, with these giants, with these, um, you know, these 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 creatures, you know, that that seem to be able to take on corporeal form um, and become extremely unheavenly in in their nature, you know, by having." You know, sex with mortal women. Um, we don't want this in there. So, books like that and the accompanying volume, which was known as the Book of Giants, which is the extended story, which is the story of the Nephilim themselves, or those that survived uh, the initial infanticide, these were just taken and removed and destroyed. Uh, and in fact, we didn't have a full copy of the, the Book of Enoch um, until. The eighteenth century, when a, um, a Scottish explorer by the name of um, James Bruce uh, went to Ethiopia um, and actually found three copies uh, and brought them back to Europe, and they were translated. and It was such a shock for European society to, to read the Book of Enoch in, you know, in English or German or French for the first time, and it seriously affected the development of certain type of, um, of Christian churches. You know, who were very sort of uh, anti-demons, anti, um, you know, the devil and hell and the rest of it, hellfire and brimstone. You know, this seriously affected them. Mm. But that's another story.
0: Well, thank you. This is all the time we have for this episode, and hopefully we'll do another one. So it's a real honor to be able to talk to you today. Thank no, you, no. Thank you. What an amazing body of knowledge here. And remember, as I said at the beginning, These watchers apparently were extraterrestrial beings, and the interesting part is that they may very well have colonized our planet in the past, and this Atlantean catastrophe that, according to Graham Hancock, happened over 12,000 years ago, wiped out most of them. The legend of the Garden of Eden may actually be that the positive beings, called the Elohim, seeded a humanity here on Earth, that was distinctly indigenous to our planet, and they actually drove off these watchers, who may very well have been reptilian beings. Now notice, as crazy as this sounds, he did say that they appeared to have serpent-like faces, penetrating eyes. My insiders have said that these people do appear to be reptilian, and their children actually became these giants. They're hybrids, and they're very tall people. They have elongated skulls, all that kind of stuff. So this is pretty wild and crazy stuff here, I understand that. You kind of have to suspend disbelief a little bit, but remember, there's very solid data about this, and Gobekli Tepe, this place that has 23 or 24 stone circles like Stonehenge, does appear to be the cradle of our modern civilization, the place where modern humans were actually created in the so-called Adam and Eve saga. It probably wasn't just two people, but it may very well be that a genetically engineered new humanity was created there and nurtured from this place, and it has now spread out across the entire planet. So coming up next time, we're going to have our second round of interviews with Graham Hancock, and this is where we start to get into a much broader discussion beyond just the original Atlantean catastrophe. We get into such things as the Ark of the Covenant, which appears to have been a super weapon developed by extraterrestrial life. We also talk about the stone heads of the Olmecs, these very bizarre, huge stones that we see in Mesoamerica. That and much more coming up in our next interview with Graham Hancock here on Disclosure. I'm your host, David Wilcock, and I thank you for watching. I'm David Wilcock and welcome to Disclosure. Disclosure of course is the concept that there are secrets that have been hidden from us that we need to know in order to get to the next level as a planet and as a civilization. These hidden truths are not doing us any good by being withheld. We need to grow up as a planet. We need to recognize that there have been advanced civilizations on Earth before the one that we built now. That is the core of what Graham Hancock has been telling us ever since his groundbreaking book, Fingerprints of the Gods in 1995, that summarized an incredible amount of data from over 300 books that I'd read before then, and he took the very best stuff and put it all together, and then had a whole bunch of things that I hadn't seen before. Now, I want you to remember that I also have had the distinct honor and privilege of being able to speak with many different insiders who have access to highly classified information, and I'm talking 35 levels above the President of the United States. Cosmic Top Secret is where you get to at that level. And once you have cosmic clearance, you are brought into a world in which there is an ongoing set of extraterrestrial politics involved in life on Earth. So this ancient civilization that was destroyed some 12,980 years ago, or whenever it was, that civilization is nothing new. By the time it got to Earth, they already had a history that apparently goes back some 5 million years in our solar system. Apparently, they colonized from the outside in. They had settled on a very large planet that actually exploded in the course of the wars they had with each other, becoming what we now call the asteroid belt. But before then, it was, in fact, a super-Earth. And these people then eventually migrated to the Earth and colonized it and settled here. And when they did so, they also had very advanced technology. So this ancient civilization actually did have capabilities that we do not now possess. When I start talking to Graham Hancock about this, you'll notice that his belief is that these people may not have had the kind of technology that we do, but they certainly had an alternative technology. And we talk a little about Tibetan acoustic levitation. The monks in Tibet were actually seen by a Dutch explorer as having the ability to make music using these weird metal drums and these long trumpets, and they were able to get stones to levitate. It was apparently photographed, it was apparently filmed, and then those films were sent back to England, after which time they were confiscated and declared classified. So is there the possibility that these secrets have been kept from us, and what could we find out? We're also going to take you on a trip to Peru. a very enigmatic set of stone ruins called Saksehuaman. When we go to Saksehuaman, what we find is incredibly large stones that have literally been mushed together almost like melted marshmallows. And as you're going to hear Graham Hancock explain, some of these stones are 15 to 20 feet deep, and they may have as many as 12 to 15 facets on them, but yet these cracks between the stones are so fine that you literally cannot insert a razor blade or even a human hair in the crack. And yet we're supposed to believe that they were carved together this way. All the evidence clearly suggests that the stones were able to be liquefied so that they were just like soft taffy. And you're also going to hear him talk about this very enigmatic idea that there are underground chambers beneath Sacsayhuaman in Peru that the Peruvian government has locked us out of we're not allowed to see what's going on in there. Many of my insiders have said that there are a huge number of underground tunnels in South America and we have been completely kept from this information. Disclosure is about the truth. Sometimes the truth hurts and when we find out that there could have been such an advanced civilization here that got completely wiped out by a massive catastrophe, that's a very unsettling notion. So I start out in our next interview with Hancock by describing to him how even something like a school bus that's going to sit in the junkyard for 50 years is going to rust away. So how much of our civilization would really survive an epic catastrophe? Not very much. So it's something to think about as we begin with part two of my enigmatic interview with Graham Hancock. Check it out. When you you go into a junkyard and you see cars that have been sitting there since the 1950s, mm. the iron is already turning to iron oxide. The oxygen is acting on the iron. And they're rusting away. That's right. So people might think, well, if these people had anti-gravity, if they could levitate large blocks of stone, where's all the iPhones? Mm. Where's all the, the tools? Mm. But what would really happen in a case of what you're talking about, this flood that you're talking about?
1: Well. Uh... I think, first first and foremost, we have to to get to grips with how massive this event is, how earth-shaking it is in in every possible way. Um, We're not talking about a small-scale cataclysm. We're talking about a gigantic event, which is is responsible for large-scale extinctions of animal species all around the world, which changes the face of the planet, which sets in motion a, a dramatic episode of sea level rise. It's natural for civilized people to uh, put their biggest resources along coastlines, and it's exactly the coastlines um, in the scenario we're, we're looking at now for what happened 12, 000, between 12,980 years ago and then 11,600 years ago, and after that. It's exactly the coastlines that get most that get most severely hit. Uh, if there was anything on the North American continent uh, in the way of those huge floods that were released by the comet impact into the North American ice cap, it would all have been swept away. Mm. Nothing, Mm. nothing would be left at all.
0: If Antarctica moved from, essentially, a tropical climate to the South Pole,
1: as is envisaged in the Earth crust displacement theory, which Flavio Barbiera finesses with the notion of a comet impact setting the Earth in spin,
0: yeah. The momentum that would be caused by that and the fact that water just sloshes around, we would be looking at worldwide tsunamis like we, Fukushima, but worse than but Fukushima. Worse, right? But worse. How, how tall do you think those waves would be?
1: Could go hundreds of feet tall, uh, and could push very far inland, uh, and 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 really bring to an end um, everything that would be that would be called a civilization.
0: And wouldn't it make sense that everything would be first crushed? And then buried under at least thirty feet of mud everywhere. Yeah, absolutely, like absolutely. Nothing that would stay above and then
1: and then would rapidly degrade. Uh, and the other thing I think we need to take into account is that we cannot know that a former civilization had the same kind of technology that we do. They may have had. They may have had a very different kind of technology. So I often think that our civilization has gone down the route of mechanical advantage. We we think in terms of mechanisms and machines, and we do things through. Um, through machines, we've been through a massive machine age, we're now perhaps coming into the digital age, but we're still, we're still doing things. Um, we're using our clever minds to create technologies that can move things for us, if you like. Mm. Um, what I think we have to consider, and what many of the ancient myths pay tribute to, is the possibility that a former civilization was able to move things around without the hardware that we, that we need, in order to do that, because as we've invested ourselves in the hardware and the mechanical route for thousands and thousands of years, we may have let lapse faculties of the human mind, which an earlier civilization might have um, elaborated to a high degree. So we shouldn't necessarily, first of all, the key point is that the cataclysm is so large that it would leave very little remnant anyway. But secondly, in what remnant is left, we shouldn't be looking for a mirror image of our own civilization. We shouldn't be looking for our kind of tech. We shouldn't be looking for our kind of material things. What we're looking at, we might not even recognize it as tech. We might not know what it is. Just as 10,000 years from now, whatever small remnants was left of our civilization after a global capitalism might not be recognized for what they are, you know, because they've, they've been part of our culture, but they might not be part of that future culture.
0: Are you familiar with the Tibetan acoustic levitation story?
1: I am familiar with it, and it's well documented. The, yeah. the, 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 there is an absent, there's a photograph. I mean, the two Tibetan monks were able to levitate substantial blocks of stone, of the order certainly of, of hundreds of pounds, uh, were able to levitate them to a great height using sound. Um,
0: Let's just briefly go through that. So, yeah. there's a quarter circle of monks, yeah. and they've got trumpets and drums. Mm-hmm. And Dan Davidson, in his book Shape Power, Mm. analyzes the dimensions because the trumpets and drums were measured. And they're all harmonic subdivisions of proportion to the size of the stone. So they start making this terrible clanging noise. It's not leather, it's metal on the drums. They clang the drums, they blast the horns, and they're chanting. And they just keep Amping up the rhythm, right. so I think it starts as like every three minutes, and then they build it up. Yeah, I forget, so the, forget the details, but the bottom the bottom the line the stone starts wobbling, yeah. and then it just starts to slowly rise up into the air. Parabolic exactly. arc. exactly, and that totally defies the laws of physics that we would understand. It, it, it
1: totally defies our understanding of the laws of physics, right? Uh, although you know, we have ourselves been able to use sound to levitate very small objects. That is that is happening now. We haven't right. got to this stage of levitating very large objects. Um, Again, I think because our minds are locked in the mechanical frame of reference that we want levers to move things, whereas there might be a whole other way of doing things. And I think when we look at the mystery of former civilization, we have to keep our minds open to the possibility that they did things in a completely different way from us. And and, and a sound-based technology would not leave behind mechanical objects. And we would then be mystified as to, how they, as to how they did what they did. So we have to, we have to broaden our perspective and our frame of reference and, and uh, look at traditions like the ancient Egyptian tradition of priests singing the giant blocks into place, right. that, that some kind of chant was involved in this. And we, instead of dismissing that as just a fantasy of the ancient Egyptian storytellers, we have to say, well, that, what could that mean? Could, that be, could we be looking at the traces of a much earlier technology that we don't understand there?
0: Well, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but I want to do this right now. The Ark of the Covenant, Yeah. the walls of Jericho. Yeah. Could you tell that story, please?
1: So, well, the Ark of the Covenant was an important part of my life for quite a long time because I wrote a book about it called The Sign of the Seal, which was published in 1992. And in writing that book, I, I had to research the story of the Ark of the Covenant in some depth, which is, of course, told extensively in the Old Testament of the Bible. Uh, but is also related, uh, there's even more material in Jewish legends and traditions concerning, concerning the Ark of the Covenant. And what emerges from all of this mass of material is an eerie feeling that we're looking at the description of a technological object of some kind, that it's some kind of machine, uh, and, and actually, first and foremost, some kind of deadly weapon um, associated with a very nasty deity, who we know as Jehovah, who is um, a real killer deity who is constantly inflicting the most awful punishments on on people, and the ark is his monstrous instrument which is which is um, the blueprint is given to Moses, and Moses is to build the ark according to a blueprint given by this entity who we are taught to believe is god uh, and and uh, this this entity, if you track his story through the Old testament he's an incredibly cruel, vicious, mean-spirited, punitive being who inflicts terrible punishments upon mankind. And the Ark is used to inflict those terrible punishments. So, when the Philistines uh, seize the Ark from from the Israelites, when they seize the Ark from the Israelites, as they do during the, the conquest of the Promised Land, um, and they open the ark. We are told that fifty thousand, fifty thousand of the Philistines die in agony, and they die of cancerous tumors, and they're afflicted with blindness. And it, it really sounds like, you know, again, we, have, we should be careful projecting our technology onto past accounts. But it does sound like radiation sickness. Fifty
0: thousand. Uh, 50,000. 50, were 50, they all right around it, or yeah, they got there?
1: they 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 have put it on display like some kind of tourist object, and everybody filed past and peered inside it, which was. Definitely not something you did with the, with the Ark of the Covenant. And then, as you said a few moments ago, there's the story of Jericho. And now, what sticks in most people's minds from the story of, of the fall of the walls of Jericho is the Israelites marching around it, blowing horns. Well, there is sound right there. But the other thing they're doing is they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant around the, the walls of Jericho and down come tumbling. The, the walls
0: but also it specifically seems to suggest that the walls that the clay became like liquid Yeah. It actually was yeah it liquefied sort of it that's right it, it changed its state yeah.
1: in some way so i find it i find it hard to resist the possibility that we are we are looking filtered through the perspective of the writers of the biblical text we are looking at uh, a description of a of a device
0: of well, some kind, also, that we don't
1: fully understand
0: you had some great stuff about these diorite vases.
1: You yeah. can't
0: even fit your pinky into it. This
1: is the case, again, that there, there are many um, stone objects from ancient Egypt, and actually from all over the world, uh, particularly strongly clustered in, in ancient Egypt, cut from a very hard, very hard stone, um, which we don't really understand how they were made, you know. They, well, at one level, you can look at them on a museum case and say, well, there's a very pretty stone vase. But if you get somebody who's involved in the drilling and cutting of stone and the making of machine tools, a guy like Chris Dunn, and have him and have him look at those, he 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 stands back and says, "I actually can't figure out how this was done. They they must have had some kind of machine tool. Even Flinders Petrie, uh, the great Egyptologist, uh, and 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 the man who now is very much associated with mainstream ideas, although he did come into his his quest in Egypt with, from a, perhaps an alternative point of view, but he convinced himself that there were ordinary explanations for things. Mm-hmm. When he looked at what are called drill cores, uh, see, when, when a granite object is, is hollowed out, uh, it's apparent that some kind of tubular drill was being used uh, to drill down into the granite. And that leaves a, a core. Uh, at the heart of the tubular drilling operation, which is then disposed of, and you then move on and you drill around and you you hollow out your your granite box and you end up with something like the sarcophagus in the King's Chamber of the Great Pyramid. Drill cores have been found. They bear the marks of the drill that cut them. And Flinders Petrie was stunned to discover that those drills, you can tell this from the, the angle of the marks, that the drills were moving at a huge speed. They were moving incredibly fast and they were cutting down into this very hard rock, granite, at, a, at, at an amazing rate. And he thought, well, perhaps they had diamond heads on those drills, but then what is the metal behind that? We're looking at 2500 BC. They're not supposed to have had steel or iron even. They're only supposed to have had copper, and copper is pretty soft metal, and, and these drills were being forced down into the granite with great pressure. So even if they had Diamond heads on the drills, which is possible. The copper tube itself would have buckled and would have and would have failed. The, not only is it being pushed down, but it's rotating at incredible speed, the only the kind of speed that can only be achieved with um, with modern machines. So, right there, staring us in the face, is evidence of a technology being used in ancient Egypt, which does not fit at all with the picture of history and prehistory that we've been. Being given by our so-called experts
0: it could be that the technology is that the, the, the secret sauce is not the drill it's the ability to make stone soft.
1: exactly that's a, that's a very that's a very interesting point that 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 could be what we're looking at here that there was a, a system a technique of softening stone and making it manipulable and moldable and that's what I've just recently been in in Peru uh, Place I've been to many, many times, Sacsayhuaman, and I've gradually got to know those gigantic zigzag stone walls of Sacsayhuaman very well, and the surrounding stone edifices that we that we see there. And I had the opportunity to go to go round some of these monuments, which our historians all attribute automatically to the Incas. They say the Incas made these walls.
0: I had the opportunity. And let's just be clear. We're talking about. These absolutely massive stones, massive blocks of stone, dwarf,
1: dwarf, dwarf the human of scale,
0: human uh, hundreds of just, tons in weight, and it, it, they all look like they're just mushed together. Yeah, they look they
1: look like they've been turned into putty and pushed together, as though somebody had the capacity to to literally soften that stone. Well, I had the opportunity to go around those sites with Jesus Kamara, who is a local researcher. Um, he himself descends from an Inca lineage. Um, And you would expect he would be the first man who would say the Incas did this. But actually, Jesus says no, the Incas didn't do this. The Incas were very late comers. The Incas simply built their stuff, rather poor quality stonework, on top of the much earlier, much older, much better stonework. And And he traces three different layers of civilization. And when you go back to the oldest layer, he shows very convincing evidence that they were melting stone. That they were that they were not cutting these stones with hammers and chisels, there are no cut marks on them they were they were softening the stone and molding it How and shaping it so it's like a, in some places it 's like a pat of butter that somebody has taken a, a knife and just scraped down. You can see that that this it looks exactly like a scrape in a pat of butter uh, but but it 's in rock solid stone today, so they're suggesting that that we're, we're looking at a technology for softening stone, and that, that would explain many of the mysteries. And, and it's much older than the Incas.
0: And the wall goes below the ground, right? The it's
1: walls go below the ground. Not only really that, but there are, there are also tunnel systems under the ground which have oh. been blocked off to the, to the public. Nobody can get in there now. Wow. There's, another, there's another secret there which, which, which is worthy of detailed exploration. For the, for the moment, it's in, it seems impossible to, to do that, but I've stood at the entrance of one of those, one of those tunnels now completely blocked. Uh, by the uh, Peruvian government.
0: OK, so Sacsayhuaman alone should be the kill shot against conventional archaeology. I,
1: I believe it should. And I think but conventional archaeology has done us a huge disservice by uh, by persuading us that the Incas did all of that. The, I'm convinced the Incas inherited that from a much earlier I've point.
0: actually heard people say that they think the Incas were trying to conserve stone, that they were environmentalists and they didn't want to waste the stone. Yeah. But some of these, how many facets do some of these rocks have sucks at Soxate? A dozen.
1: A dozen? A dozen facets, sometimes more. And how deep is it? Well, they go 15, 20 feet deep in some cases. They're, 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 I mean, this is on a giant scale. This is cyclopean masonry. This is polygonal cyclopean masonry on an enormous, on enormous, mind-boggling scale.
0: And they're perfectly straight lines when they're pushed together. Oh, yeah. And it just goes They put together. Feet. If
1: you imagine uh, a really complicated jigsaw puzzle, it's right. like that. But it's done on a scale of blocks weighing hundreds of tons, and 12, 15, 18 feet high, and 14 or 15 feet deep. I mean, just
0: huge
1: blocks of stone. I've been to Sacsayhuaman so many times. I first went there in, way back in 1992. I probably made a dozen visits to Sacsayhuaman. Every time I go there, I am just more in awe of what I'm looking at and less able to explain it. If it was a revelation to me to go around with Jesus Gamara and see what he was showing me, which was, was, you know, normally, when archaeologists look at archaeological sites and they see very different styles of building, they're open to the idea that very different cultures made them. But what we see in the Andes is three distinctly different styles of building, all of which have been given without thought to the Incas. And Jesus Gamara's suggestion is that that actually the Incas were overbuilding on pre-existing structures. That those structures were sacred to them and they were important to them. So they built around them and on top of them, and and uh, you know created spaces that honoured that previous architecture. Have you looked into the Olmec stone heads? have indeed. I've uh, been to La Venta several times and, and traveled in the, along the Gulf of Mexico and the whole, whole story of the Olmecs is another gigantic uh, mystery, Liter- literally gigantic, because those, those stone heads, again, you're looking at weights verging 80, 90, 100 tons in some places, really huge, huge blocks of stone. Um, of course, the features uh, of the faces that are carved into those blocks of stone are not those of uh, in, indigenous uh, Native Americans. Uh, where exactly they come from, they do look a lot like Africans, but they might also be Polynesians. It's difficult to be, it's difficult to be absolutely sure what their origin is. What, what you can say is that they don't look like anybody who, um, who, who's in Central America today. Right. Um, they, they are mysterious strangers. And carved alongside those gigantic, quote-unquote, Olmec heads are images of uh, individuals who look like Caucasians. Uh, again, they don't look like Native Americans. They have they have ca- classic uh, ca- Caucasian features. They have heavy beards, um, which which are not grown by the indigenous inhabitants of Native America. Um, you know, and and this ties in with with ancient traditions and myths. It's, it's a politically correct view now in archaeology uh, to say that all of the, the the myths of so-called myths of Quetzalcoatl, of the feathered serpent were kind of made up by the conquistadors because they wanted uh, to say that there had been a former white-skinned, bearded presence like them in Latin America. But when you go to La Venta and you see in the oldest archaeological strata from Mexico images of clearly bearded, Caucasian-looking people, you have to realize that those myths, whether the archaeologists like it or not, are based on some kind of fact. What that fact is, I, I don't know for sure, but there were people in the Americas who are not accounted for by the present model of history, which has the whole population of Americas, North and South Americas, crossing the Bering Straits not much more than 13,000 years ago, uh, and uh, populating both North and South America from there, Asiatic peoples who came from, uh, from you know, Siberia and China. Uh, the, these are seen as the population base for the whole of the Americas, but in fact, we have these carvings, the Olmec heads. We have the, the bearded Caucasian-looking individuals in, in Mexico. We have individuals who look like uh, aborigines in Brazil. Recent excavations in Brazil have produced this, this uh, uh, physical type, which is, again, not the same as the Asiatic physical type that we find throughout most of the, the Americas. There's something going on in the story of the Americas. And the, the, increasingly, the so-called Clovis model, you know, that the, the, the Americas were not People the all until fourteen thousand years ago or less uh, is being challenged and overthrown by by new evidence.
0: Well, and Brian Forster is finding more and more of these uh, exotic skulls. Indeed, and, and those with red skulls. hair. Yeah, those exotic skulls are really interesting
1: and really really intriguing. I, I mean, the, the conventional answer to that is that there was head binding of infants. They bound the heads to to produce this very elongated.